Uh, Luke chapter 18 this morning, please. Luke chapter number 18. Uh, last Sunday we finished up some time in the book of Ruth, and I thought that it would be profitable for us if we just turned our attention for some time to the subject of prayer. And so we're going <clears> to <throat> begin to walk that way for a little bit on Sunday mornings. Let's go ahead and stand, please. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8 are our portion for this morning. And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint, saying, There was in a city a judge, which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cried day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. And let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you that <clears throat> we are invited to come to you. Thank you that you want us to come to you. Thank you that our authority for coming to you is our faith in the blood of your Son, our Savior. And through his work, we have both peace with you and access to you, never upon our own merit, but by your mercy. Given this, Father, what a <clears throat> foolish thing it is for us to not avail ourselves much and often of prayer. Make us a people who pray, please. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may, of course, be seated. Well, as I mentioned, I <clears throat> thought it would be to our profit to turn some of our Sunday morning attention to the subject matter of prayer. <clears throat> it is rare that you would find anybody <clears throat> who would claim satisfaction with their prayer life. We might be willing to admit that we read our Bibles regularly. We might be willing to talk about the ways that we serve. We might be willing <clears throat> to have noted that our giving is regular and faithful and generous. But very few of us would accept any accolades or claim any credit for our prayer lives. 
We all know that we should do it, and yet almost universally we admit to struggling with doing it. It is not my intention <clears throat> to lambast us or to berate us, but rather to, particularly in the first few weeks, <clears throat> to look at the incentive the Lord provides for us to do it. I think that it is the Lord Jesus who lays the foundation for us. And then we will turn our attention to the way that the apostles prayed. This morning then, I wish to address the most basic of all prayer questions. Why should we pray at all? Why bother to pray? We will get to this text eventually, but Jesus points out to us when teaching us to pray that the Father already knows what we need before we ever ask. So again, why pray? Why should I bother to take the time to ask you to do something you already know I'm going to ask you to do? Let me propose to you that this parable... <clears throat> actually sets before us four reasons why you should pray, why I should pray. But before we get to that, I want to point out, folks, that there is a very distinct context to this prayer. That this really is not a generic <clears throat> cover all the bases, touch on all possible scenarios, kind of passage. For instance, look back at chapter 17 and verse number 20. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come. When is the kingdom of God coming? That's the context, folks. That's the framework. When is the kingdom coming? And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. And notice, if you will please, the specific request that the woman is making in verse number three. Avenge me of mine adversary. When is the kingdom coming? What does the lady want? She wants to be avenged of her adversary. When is the resolution <clears throat> to the whole issue? Verse number 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. When is the kingdom coming? What will it be like when the king comes? Folks, this is, a, this is a prayer and this is an explanation that deals with one particular issue. If I can put it this way, and that is the arrival of the king and the resolution of injustice. Now, I'm going to argue that 
Jesus is encouraging us to be faithful to prayer, all pray always in all things, but he is using this specific context to deal with it. Let me suggest to you, although it's not part of the text, but let me suggest to you why I would say that. At the almost end of the New Testament, right before we get to the book of Revelation in the little book of Jude, verse number 14 points out that Enoch, who was the seventh from Adam, and if you go to Genesis chapter 5 and start looking through the genealogy, there's Adam, and then you count seven men born, listed, boom, 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 you get to number seven, and it's Enoch. Seventh male listed as being born after Adam, that far back in human history, Enoch had a message. The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. He is coming with 10,000 of his saints. Now here we are, folks, through approximately four or 5,000 years of Old Testament history, 2,000 years of New Testament history, and he hasn't come yet. When you get to the book of Revelation, and we will look at a couple of verses in Revelation a little bit later, what is the prayer? Even so come, Lord Jesus. Enoch wanted him to come. Abraham wanted him to come. Paul wanted him to come. Peter wanted him to come. John wanted him to come. Didn't come. And all the while that men are praying for him to come and he doesn't come, they are experiencing injustices for the sake of his name. Avenge me of mine adversary. Why do we want him to come? We want things set right, don't we? We want his name to be recognized. We want to be vindicated for what we believe. We want to be vindicated for the positions we have taken. And Peter points out to us that the fact that he hasn't come will cause us no small problem among unbelievers who will conclude that since he hasn't come yet, he probably isn't ever going to. Where is the promise of his coming? He's been promising and promising and promising. It is into that world, folks, that Jesus speaks these words as the Pharisees demanded. When is the kingdom coming? So with that as our foundation, let me suggest to you four explanations for why you should pray. From Luke chapter 18. Number one, we should pray because Jesus wants us to pray. We should pray because Jesus wants us to pray. He spake a parable unto them to this end that men ought always to pray and not to faint. This is the purpose of the parable. He's telling the parable with this point that men should pray. Why should I pray? Why should I pray if the Lord knows what I need? Why should I pray if I pray and he never seems to answer it anyway? You should pray because the Lord wants you to pray. That's what he said. Here is a parable 
a comparison. The Greek words that are used, parable, are literally two words that mean to throw a ball. To throw it alongside. Here is one thing. Here is a story that will illustrate it. And it is a parable, if you'll look at verse number one, folks, that has a moral imperative. That little word, ought, is the moral imperative of the text. Not a suggestion. He spake a parable unto them to this end, laying upon us an obligation to pray. And it is that men ought always to pray. And I I just want to stop and talk about that for a moment, folks. Because that has been so twisted by well-intentioned people. Men ought always to pray, which somehow means that you should endeavor to always be in some attitude of prayer. As if prayer was some kind of background music to the Christian life. Paul also said that we should pray without ceasing. But it doesn't mean constantly, folks. It just doesn't mean 24 hour a day, 7 day a week, somewhere in the back of your head, always at all times is some prayer going on. It doesn't mean that. Let me just suggest to you why it doesn't mean that. Luke chapter 18 and verse number 1, And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Now look back at Luke chapter 11. And verse number 1. And it came to pass that as he, Jesus, was praying in a certain place when he ceased. Paul said, pray without ceasing. Jesus ceased. The idea, folks, to go back to Luke 18, and I think if we would just look at the context and think about it, and I'm not saying that any of you think that, maybe, maybe you're going, oh, Largent, he's lost his mind yet again, and who knows what he's talking about. What Jesus is encouraging here, verse number 18, or chapter 18, verse number 1, he spake a parable unto them, here's the point of the parable. The men ought to always pray and not to faint, not to abandon prayer, not to throw in the towel, not to come to the conclusion, right? Specifically within this context, not to come to this conclusion that your praying gets you nothing so there's no point in praying. I ask and he doesn't answer, so why bother? I have sought and he doesn't respond. What's the use? He spake a parable to them to this end to put a stop to that kind of thinking. Why should we pray? Because Jesus wants you to. This isn't the second point, but it's part of the first and we will get to this, folks. Why does God want me to pray? Because prayer is what God chooses to use to accomplish His will. 
for all that God does, folks, right? For every end that God has, He has also planned a means to accomplish that end. For everything that God wants done, He has told us how to do what He wants done. This is kind of fundamental, basic, elementary Christianity. He accomplishes purposes in a certain way, and one of those is that his people pray. How do people get saved? They hear the gospel. Somebody has to tell them the gospel. This is one of the ways that God accomplishes purposes. Does he want to save people? Yes. Does he just rain down, whiffle dust gospel from the skies? No. How shall they hear except somebody preach to them the gospel? Romans chapter 10. God has a plan that he has put into place for all that he wants to get done to get done. He has his end and he has his means. And he, to, with, with, without accusing him of any evil spirit, folks, let us understand that God is very particular that what he wants done gets done in the way that he wants it done. That's what Paul is going on about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 when he is talking about the message of the cross that doesn't seem like it's going to go over well. But this is God's way. This is what he wants. Preach the gospel. I will accomplish my purposes. So God insists that we pray. He wants us to pray because he wants to answer prayer. Even though, we will come to this, even though it oftentimes looks like he doesn't really want to answer prayers. Because he never seems to answer ours. And implied in the text, folks, is this. If people don't pray, they just might faint. And I think that the fainting there is not just simply the fainting of praying. And I would base that upon the question that Jesus asked in verse number 8, which really summarizes the passage. Why, why am I praying? Well, here's the question that the Lord has. Right? The question that I might ask is, why do I pray and you don't answer? Why do I ask for these things and I don't seem to get them? And the Lord's question is, when I show up, will anybody believe me? Will there be any faith on the earth? So why should we pray? Well, we should pray first of all because the Lord wants us to pray. Part of our salvation has made it possible for us to pray. Wherefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain help, we may have t- I'm sorry, we may be in mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Christ has made it possible for us to pray and have those prayers heard. He wants you to pray. Why should we pray? Secondly, because when we pray, 
we demonstrate that we understand God's character. Jesus makes a statement. He spake a parable unto them to this end that men ought always to pray and not to faint. He's going to give us now a story. He's going to tell us the parable. And here's the parable. Once upon a time, there was a judge, a man who wielded tremendous authority and power. This man didn't care anything about God. He never made a decision in his life that had anything to do with God. He never thought about God. His decisions were never based upon what was right by the Lord or what the Bible might have taught. He didn't care anything about God. Neither did he care anything about people. This was a man, folks, who was totally self-consumed. He didn't think about the Lord. He didn't think about anybody else. He thought only about himself. That's the implication. The only thing that ever mattered to him was him. And then there's this widow. And just as the judge is the strongest of the strong and the mightiest of the mighty, the widow is the weakest of the weak. We would call her disenfranchised. She has no voice. She has no standing. But she does have access to the judge. And so she just keeps coming to him with one request, avenge me of mine adversary. Avenge me of mine adversary. The word came in verse number three. There was a widow that in that city and she came unto him. The English there doesn't quite catch the intensity of the action of the Greek verb. She keeps on coming to him. She chases him down. When he tries to leave his house in the morning, she's standing in the driveway. When he shows back up at night, she is standing on the porch. When he's at the lunch counter, she is standing right next to him. Avenge me of mine adversary. And finally, verse number five, for no other reason than a selfish reason, Not because she had a good case. Not because she was a poor widow. He cared nothing about God and nothing about the woman. He finally said, I'm just going to to judge in your favor because I'm tired of hearing you talk. You are exhausting me. Leave me alone. Have your way. I, I avenge your case. Now, here's the question for you. What does that teach you about God? What is your takeaway about the Father from the judge? And folks, let me suggest to you, well, I won't suggest to you, I will insist to you that Jesus is very clear when he gives the answer, and that is this. Not that the Father is just like that, And you just keep coming and coming and coming. And he couldn't care less. But one of these days, because you just keep coming and coming and coming, he will finally do it to get you off of his back. Now let's be realistic. 
we have probably all behaved like that at some point in time in a human relationship, right? Just, right, we have just, it has been said to us or we have said to somebody else, probably our spouses, I am so tired of hearing you talk about this, just do what you want. Just do what you want and leave me alone. I don't want to hear about it anymore. But folks, the parable doesn't mean that God is like that. The parable means just exactly the opposite. God is not at all like that. If you think that that's the way God really is, you are in the wrong about him. He is not unjust. He is not uncaring. But look at the way that it is put in verse number 7, folks, because this is the critical explanation for how the father is not like the judge. Shall not God avenge his own elect? Right? There's the, there was her question, avenge me. Avenge me. And here's, here is the position. Now, will not the father avenge his own? Which cried day and night unto him, though he bear long with them. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean he bears long with them? Well, and here's what, here's what it means, right? The, the judge is exhausted by this woman coming to him. Right? That's what he says in the text. Right? Verse number five, I will avenge her lest by her continual coming she weary me. She wears me out. But you can't wear out the father. That's the point he's making. The father doesn't get worn out. Literally what Jesus said is he's very long-winded, you know. If this prayer is like some kind of a marathon, right? He's very long-winded. He can keep up with you the whole time and it doesn't bother. He's going to avenge you. He is not going to get exhausted by your perpetual coming. He is not going to be frustrated by your perpetual coming. And in fact, in verse number 8, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Which is Bible code, folks. For when it begins to happen, it will happen very quickly. which is another aspect into God's character. This is, this is part of the issue that is at stake here, folks. Contrary to the couple of passages that do seem at times to indicate otherwise, that you can just tell God you want something and if you have enough faith, he's going to roll over and give it to you. Prayer is always just that. Prayer is always a request. It is always a request from one who is an inferior us asking of one who is a superior God. It is always the request of one who has partial knowledge asking of one who has complete knowledge. We tend to think in minutes, I don't have much time or weeks or months. God thinks in eternities. It's not accidental, folks, that you'll find God periodically in the Old Testament 
making some kind of a declaration about what will happen. And then 300 years later, it does happen. And the narrator goes, oh, by the way, this was to fulfill the word of the Lord that he spoke 300 years ago. And we go, what good does 300 years do me? If you would at Revelation chapter 6. Again, this fits right within the exact immediate subject matter that Jesus is talking about, his return. And when he comes back, it will be the day of his vengeance. Revelation chapter 6 and verse number 9. When he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Because, folks, going all the way back to Enoch, there's been a pretty long list of people who said the Lord is coming and a longer list of people who said, we don't want to hear that and you're going to pay the price. Verse 10, they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, Dost thou not judge, and here's our word, avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? How long? We've been waiting since Enoch. How long? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was sent unto them that they should rest. Yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. We have partial knowledge. He has full knowledge. We have a little power. He has all power. We are invited to pray. Our prayers are heard. Our prayers matter. But he is doing what he is doing. I pray because he tells me to pray. I pray because my prayer reflects an understanding of his great nature. I pray in spite of the fact that he knows what I need. I pray in spite of the fact that some of those prayers may not be answered in my lifetime. Because thirdly, I pray because I believe his assurance. I tell you, verse number 8, he will avenge them speedily. Speedily. Nevertheless, verse 8, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. In spite of this reality, in spite of this promise, will there be those who believe? Now, there's a lengthy, and and, and I'm not going to try and get into it, there's kind of a debate about whether he's talking there about personal faith or faith in general, whether, whether, whether there'll be any true faith on the earth. But I think that is established. I think the question he's getting at will... People believe that he is coming. Will he find people with this kind of confidence? And by the way, folks, to to go back to future events, 
When he says, verse number 8, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Never the man, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. Remember that he is already on the earth. This is a, this is a discussion about his second coming. This is anticipating the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension. And then when he comes, because he's here. He's not asking if anybody believes him now. He's asking if anybody will believe him then. What is, let's just think about, let's just think about it. So, as I mentioned, the specific subject matter and the context here is upon the Lord's vindication of his own people which cannot happen until he comes back, which is something that somebody has been predicting since the seventh man born after Adam and has yet to happen. But what is one of the major obstacles to unbelievers believing and to Christians being faithful to the Lord and praying is this very question when is he coming and when is he going to act? Let me ask you to turn, if you would, to Second Peter chapter 3. And let me insert my apology in here now because I'd begun by saying I four points from the text, but I'm making three points from the text, so I need to go back and fix that. Math, you know that math is not my strong suit. 2 Peter 3.3 3. Knowing this first that there shall come in the last day scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying where is the promise of his coming for since the fathers fell asleep all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation for this they willingly are ignorant of For this they willingly are ignorant of. As somebody pointed out, dumb on purpose. For this they willingly are ignorant of. That by the word of the Lord the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Creation whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water the flood perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Which on a side note, folks, touches upon the panic that we seem to be experiencing in our world that if we do not pull out every stop to save the world from climate change, the world will end. Not according to Peter. And therefore not according to us. Verse number 8, but beloved, be not ignorant of this thing. This one thing. Don't lose sight of this one thing. While all this has been going on since the creation and the flood. That one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. And you know this, we know this, but it's not a timetable. Right? It's not an algorithm for calculating the date of the Lord's return. It is a matter of perspective. 
we tend to be down here praying and going, God, you've got to do something, and he doesn't answer our prayer. And we despair because God has an answer to prayer in a month, and you could not calculate how small an amount of time a month is to an eternal God. This is an admonition for us not to lose heart and not to lose sight. God is holding on to the world. He will accomplish his purposes with it. And here's what we need to remember. One day, 1,000 years, potato, potato. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, Peter says, as some men count slackness but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Another dimension of perspective. Lord, when are you coming? Well, I'm still trying to save people. But the day of the Lord, verse 10, will come as a thief in the night. He will avenge them speedily, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So folks, our praying is not simply about asking and receiving. It is about asking and receiving. But it is not simply about asking and receiving. It is about believing. Why should I pray? Because Jesus tells me to pray. And we pray because we understand God and we believe him. Even though in some cases what we are praying for may never really happen in our lifetime. There have been many saints that have prayed for the Lord to return before they died, but he hasn't. But we should keep on praying for the Lord to return. He will teach us, we will see this, he will teach us to pray specifically for his kingdom to come, and yet it has not come. And Paul died waiting for the kingdom. So let me just throw this into the mix, folks, in conclusion. Because, right, people do tend to faint in their praying because they believe that their prayers don't get answered perhaps because they don't count, because God doesn't hear, because we're not of the right kind of stature to warrant those kinds of answers as if there were some kind of super saint somewhere who do deserve to get their prayers answered. So, three times in the book of Revelation. Revelation 5.8, Revelation 8.3, Revelation 8.4. We are informed about our prayers. That God has them. That he has kept them. I suppose it would be more exciting if we could just keep ever longer lists of things that we asked for that God gave us instantly. 
But our prayers are really supposed to be shaped by who God is and what he's doing. More than anything else, we'll get to that. More than anything else, folks, our prayer lives are supposed to be first and foremost oriented by the things that concern God. So pray for the kingdom to come. Pray for him to be vindicated. Avenge me of mine adversary. Pray for the ordinary things. Certainly. But pray. Don't quit praying. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that all of our prayers have been kept. That they are precious to you. That that you are long-suffering. You are long-winded. You are not exhausted by our prayers. You have your own mind. You have your own will. And part of your will is that we, your people, would be faithful to pray always. Give to us great faith that you will come and make things right, that all things will be new, that our lives reflect that. In Jesus' name, amen.